go. Hey. I bought a farm. Episode five, as Colton yeah. keeps us in line. Hey, nice to see you guys again. Yeah, good to see you. You know, uh, so we talk. Well, we had Seth on last uh, last podcast, and Seth was really good at kind of you know from that tax professional angle as well as personal investment angle uh, into properties. But I think one thing that probably weighs on everybody's mind when they're thinking about buying land or a farm is how do I pay for it? How do you pay for it? And so I know you and I have worked at this for a while because if if we didn't just jump right into it. Probably episode two would have been lenders, mm-hmm. um, but just trying to get schedules in and get content moving forward. Here we are in episode five, and finally getting around to it. We don't have one, but we have two. Uh, yeah, there you go. That, got, that's our attempt to make yeah, up for it. We've got two loan officers uh, from Rural First. So we've got uh, Amanda Falk and Emily Stamper. Um, Amanda is from Ohio. Emily's from Kentucky. Coincidentally, Amanda's from the same county as my Ohio farm and Emily's from the same area as my Kentucky farm. Yeah. Um, and so both of them are loan officers, um, from rural first. And I think what's going to be cool here is you know, rural first is one of those lenders that, um, you know, their expertise is in, you know, farmland, ag land, timber land. Um, and recreational land. In fact, we'll hear probably a little bit of differences between even their two territories. You know, Emily and I talked yesterday, um, most of her portfolio is recreational land. Mm-hmm. And I think Amanda's probably has a lot of it as recreational land, but I think she also has a lot of livestock uh, and, and commercial ag type stuff. So, you know, it'll be interesting. The, the big question for everybody is how do I pay for this thing? And, you know, if you've ever approached a traditional bank, you probably have felt the the block uh, of you know buying raw land, and it's because those banks don't understand the value of raw land, whether recreational or farmland. Uh, most don't, and so now you've got these specialized lenders like Rural First, who are set up to assist um, you know buyers in financing these types of tracks, because you know. The, the vast majority of us are never going to go out and spend $300,000 in cash on a piece of property. You know, we want financing. We want to, to receive a mortgage, essentially a loan on that property um, and, you know, be able to finance it just like we would our personal residence. So that's what Rural First is for. And that's yeah. where Emily and Amanda come in to hopefully help us help us navigate some of these questions. Yeah, well, I mean, dude, that's <clears throat> my hope with this podcast is that by the end of it, <clears throat> and it's, it's tricky to do because there's so many questions, mm-hmm. you know, circling this this discussion here. But I, you know, I hope that we can make it seem simple. <laughs> yeah, you know, as opposed as opposed to more difficult because, like, just like you said, there, the first thing here is identifying a lender who will deal in this kind of niche of, of lending because because mm-hmm. a vast majority, like you said, of, of banks are much more familiar or more comfortable because the thing you got to remember is like dude it's not it's not like black and white here's here's the process you know you buy a piece of land regardless of the size or if it has structures yep. or timber or ag or not mm-hmm. um you know it really is about finding an organization who specializes in this and that has individuals who are comfortable working in this space yep. you know and, and at the end of the day you know there's not a lot of them. Well, and you and I have navigated this now, being on the whitetail property side and and having some uh, likely listings coming up. And then even as personal buyers, um, you know, I remember when I bought my first piece of property, I went to my local bank and they were like, no. And then the, the next bank I went to was still kind of a local bank. And they said, yes, but that was because 
the structure on my Kentucky property was worth a lot more than most structures that are on farms. Yeah. Um, like it was a true house that I was buying, basically. The land was just extra. And so, you know, when you start to get into this model, um, I think a lot of people run into those blocks and they're just like, well, it's impossible to do. And, and the one thing I will preface before we get these guys on is that like every state is a little bit different, right? Yeah. There's different policies. Um, some lenders, you know, especially if you're buying out of state, which I do a lot and I know you've looked at, you know, I live in Pennsylvania, but I bought in Ohio and Kentucky, you know, you have to find lenders that are able to do that and work in those states. So Rural First is one of those, and we'll let Emily and Amanda kind of talk to um, what states that they're qualified in. So if you are listening to this and you're looking at potentially trying to get pre-approved for a loan, these are where these guys are going to cover. Obviously, Ohio and Kentucky, and I know there's a handful of other states too. Yeah. So, Well, you know, you'll find out that, that these things, like many, are relationship-based. 100%. Um, and so while we can kind of point in the right direction of an organization to, to kind of start with, um, you know, you should take it upon yourself to, to, to make a relationship with not just, uh, you know, one lender, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, reach out, introduce yourself, get to know some of these. Like, there really is, I can count probably on this hand. Yeah, there's four fingers there. You know, we've come across, you know, Rural First, who we're about to talk to here mm -hmm. right now. Um, Ag Choice. Ag Choice Farm Credit is another one that, that lends in, uh, you know, our neck of the woods here. Mm -hmm. I have heard that Huntington, Huntington Bank uh, will lend on on raw land, you know, mm -hmm. that may not be the whole organization. You may have just gotten in touch with the right lender, you know, hence yep. the importance of the relationship. Yep. Uh, who did we talk to the other day? Fulton Bank? Fulton Bank. Yeah, those are the four that I know right now. Fulton Bank. Uh, and that's just our area, right? I'm sure that there's more. I'm sure there's other farm credit unions that will be around. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. And we would love to know, though. I mean, if, if there are more that you guys are aware yeah, of, like comment. Please, please comment and let us know. We, we'd love to uh, broaden our horizon with that as well. I think the other thing, too, probably just because we want to have context in some of these discussions is you may hear you or I talk about some of our personal situations when we're talking with Emily and Amanda. And that's simply so that you guys have context to an example, right? And that's not saying like, you know, this is going to be applicable for everyone, but we want to have real world examples so that you can kind of hear the situations you might run into and how it's going to work. That's an important reality. No piece of property is the same. Therefore, no yep. lending situation is going to be exactly the same either. So I think my goals when we get um, Amanda and Emily on, or we want to talk about uh, maybe your situation, which is your first time buyer of a secondary property. You have a primary house. Mm -hmm. What does that situation look like? Different than maybe my situation where I have a portfolio of assets. How could uh, you know a rural first leverage those assets to help me continue to build that portfolio out? Right. Um, so that's kind of the the plan today, and who knows what rabbit holes will will go down after that. Um, but I think uh, it's going to be a valuable podcast if you are looking at buying a farm or buying land. You have to understand financing, and that's what we're hoping we'll get accomplished today. Cool. Let's bring them in. Hey guys. Hey. Perfect. See, look, that wasn't that hard, right? We had it all teed up and ready to go. We did. See, by the time we record the podcast, we we make it seem like everybody's an expert, right? It's like, oh, there was no no technical glitches here. Like we dove right into this thing and we're ready to go. Might need lots of editing. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we first of all, we appreciate you guys joining us. Um so uh, kind of what I want to do right out of the gate is, uh, and doesn't matter, Emily, let's, let's just start with you. Uh, just give your name and kind of where, what your position is at Rural First and what territories you serve. And then Amanda will kind of do the same thing with you. Okay, 
Cool. Well, I am Emily Stamper. Uh, I am a loan officer with Rural First. I sit in our Mount Sterling, Kentucky office. So I essentially cover Eastern Kentucky. So basically Lexington East and South, um, and then also Southern Ohio. So I've got about 25 counties between the two states uh, that I covered. Perfect. I'm Amanda Falk. I sit in our Albany office. I'm the same as um, Emily. I'm the loan officer for Rural First. I have I kind of cover the southeastern quadrant of the state. So I think that I have nine counties in southern Ohio. Perfect. And and just for our listeners, um, and I know we kind of briefly touched on this yesterday when we kind of led up into the podcast, but what uh, what states does Rural First work in from a land loan uh, option? Yeah, so Rural First is the Consumer Division of Farm Credit Mid-America. So Farm Credit Mid-America, um, our four main states are Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee. Um, however, Rural First is partnered with other farm credit associations across the U.S. Um, so we also cover some areas in like Texas, Colorado. Um, I'm trying to think some of our other partners. Uh, Kansas, uh, I think we've got some partners in Illinois now. So we're rapidly growing to expand across the whole U.S. Awesome. Well, and, you know, one thing that, um, you know, a lot of listeners probably have experienced and and I think, you know, I know I experienced the first time I was like, well, you know, I want to buy a piece of land is, you know, my first reaction often is to go to my local bank, right? Or, or the bank where my maybe my checking account is with. And then quickly people will learn that most of those banks don't want anything to do with the land that I want to purchase. Um, and so, you know, it seems like, uh, I, I won't say necessarily fairly recent, but the, the options of something like a Rural First have been more prevalent here in the last few years. How long has Rural First been in business um, dealing with this side of stuff? So I started um, as an actual farm credit like that was my job description. That was farm credit when I started in 2018, the summer of 2018. Mm. Um, and I think shortly after is when they kind of, yeah, when they kind of morphed into this rural first side. And there was, it, that's essentially why we needed it. There was a need there for rural financing, whether it be for recreational properties, lots, um, and really construction is another piece that we do really mm. well. Um, and that was just because uh, our local banks have a hard time with that. Um, they don't necessarily fit into that secondary market portfolio. So it's something that we found as a niche that we do really well. And I think that's why we've been pretty successful spreading out um, across the U.S. It's just been there is a niche for this and it's something that there is a need for um, a special financing outlet for these type of properties. And I think that's one thing we talked about yesterday that I thought was unique about the Rural First um, aspect is that most people who own a, a primary home are used to conventional mortgages and that mortgage eventually getting sold into the secondary mortgage market. Whereas what you guys are doing when you do a loan, that remains in-house in your portfolio, correct? Yes. Everything that we do, not only with Rural First, but Farm Credit as well, we keep in-house. That's a huge selling point. Um, you know, whenever you need uh, something on your loan, you may have questions about your payment or, you know, you're looking to sell off 20 acres of your 100 acre parcel. You call us and you can talk to us directly in your local office. So, so, so as, part, cool. as part of that, I, I guess, you know, you kind of mentioned there in terms of we can call you directly and talk. I mean, what are those strategic advantages? I mean, is it just because since you guys have that in that, in that portfolio, you're able to be more flexible with, you know, utilizing that equity or taking a loan against the equity or selling off a parcel? Is, is that basically what, because I think I'm, I'm kind of unfamiliar with, you know, what are the restrictions once that goes to a secondary mortgage versus if you guys have that in-house portfolio? 
Yeah, I think that all, like really all of those are good options. I, so I worked for a while in the secondary market um, before coming here. And so the biggest advantage I see is for my customers directly. Like they have the option to call somebody that they know. They can stop by my office if they don't feel comfortable doing something online or talking to someone that isn't local. So really it's just having a resource that's really close that um, can answer questions for you, can release parcels. I know on a lot of our deals, because they are larger tracts of land, somebody wants to divide off a house and eventually sell the house and keep the land, or they want to um, sell to maybe one of their kids. That's all options that we can do. And then we can just turn around and re-amortize the rest of the loan um, without having to refinance it. So there's a lot of different really cool options, I think, because we do service them in-house. Do you guys think that because of the way that that's structured, it also allows you on the front end as as loan officers to kind of um, decide to lend, more, you know, more flexibly, you know, based on, on the relationship with the individual because it's not getting sold to a secondary market, you know, because, because you're going to say, hey, I'm going to keep this in house. You know, this is this is something that's going to be in our portfolio. This may not match a traditional uh, you know, thing that we would lend on, but I, I know this person, we've dealt with them. I, I know what they're going to do with these funds and I'm going to get my money back. Do you guys feel like you have more flexibility on the front end because of that structure? I think us, like as loan officers, we don't necessarily, but like how we lend in general um, as a whole, yes. Like, because we are looking more at the whole big picture of things mm -hmm. and not just at that specific property so much, if that makes sense. Yeah, it so does. Like we can, you know, somebody like, let's say right now it's, you know, hundred acres of vacant land and maybe it's a little bit tied on the numbers, but then, you know, we know, okay, well, in, you know, six months they're planning to sell off 50 acres of this. They're going to pay down on that loan balance. We're going to recalculate or re-amortize that payment. It's going to get us back within our numbers. Like we can get a little bit more comfortable with things awesome. um, because we look at that big picture. I, I think that's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Anna. But also at the end of the day, I think it's always important to remember the ability to repay is the ability to repay. I have to make that work um, on paper somehow. So, you know, a lot of times we run into people that are self-employed and try to write everything off or they have, you know, some different revenue sources where they're, they're taking those. <laughs> I know this speaks to you. <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, these additional revenue sources and writing off against them, which is fine. We get that. We do that all the time, but it's important to be mindful to how you're doing that because at the end of the day we are a lender and we have to make that repayment 100%. well i mean i think one of the things that I, i've experienced personally that's frustrating as, as a buyer is that i know i have the ability to repay in some cases literally in cash in the bank sure uh and i've had lenders say yeah, it's not good enough mm -hmm. well i mean <laughs> in our situation so um and we talked about this yesterday guys you know jared and i are, are real estate agents for whitetail properties here in southwest pennsylvania um, I own property in Pennsylvania. I also own in Ohio and Kentucky. Um, you know, what, what we've run into, uh, and I haven't personally with the properties I've bought, but we hear call the nightmare stories is the appraisal side, um, of raw and recreational land in it, in mainly in maybe the last call it 12 to 18 months being more of an issue because the demand in the market is driving the price up so high that you all as lenders have to protect your investments. So when it comes to, you know, loan to value, essentially, let's say traditional is 80, 80% loan to value, meaning the buyer's putting 20% down. If that thing doesn't appraise for what the sell price is, there's a gap that has to be made up. Um, are, are you guys seeing that in your area at all more recently? You had a really good point about this. Yeah, I, I do think that we're seeing it more more commonly. And it's try to it tries to be a conversation that I have on the front end because ultimately we're in a market where 
the prices are soaring and there is a demand for those properties. So people are overpaying. Um, however, I don't know that the market has adjusted quite yet to those prices. So it takes a little bit because an appraisal is all about comparable sales. Um, so it takes a little bit for that market to catch up to it. So I think eventually that we, we will get a little closer there, but the unknown is what's going to happen, you know, in six, eight months with the market then. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a weird time, I think, in real estate when it comes to that. Um, so it's a conversation we have on the front end because we essentially don't want you to be in over your head and we don't want that appraisal to come in, you know, at sales price if that's not genuinely what we would value that property at. I think that we do a really good job here on appraisals. So anything over 40 acres is an in-house farm credit appraiser that does those properties. Mm. So we're very well versed in those acreage appraisals, yeah. a little more than maybe some fee appraisers might be. So I think that that's something that we do do well. And we have a little better um, set of impact and information behind those decisions, at least. Well, and I would assume that, you know, Rural First and Farm Credit as a whole is, you know, essentially dealing with a lot of these properties. So you probably have a lot of in-house comps that you can go back and say, well, we just did this one in, you know, Central Kentucky. And now this one's in Northeast Kentucky. And you've got those in-house comps to compare to. Where I think a lot of these banks are, are throwing it out the third party appraisers that may be mainly dealing in real estate and then they get this chunk of land and they're like, Well, there's no structure, it's worth X per acre and you know, there's a two hundred thousand dollar gap in what the sales price is and what the appraised price is. It's very much like um <clears throat> you know, so so when Margie and I bought uh, our business, mm -hmm. a, a large portion of what I what we paid for that was for the goodwill of the business, you know, the, the name that was built up over, you know, seventy years. And it, it seems com kind of comparable to like a hunting utility on a, on a property, you know, like it is something that, uh, you know, a growing demographic of people will pay for, you know, you show them a picture of a 200 inch deer on a property, it's valuable, you know, they'll pay for it, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not necessarily something you can look at and say as a lender, okay, in the, in the, in the event that you guys don't pay, I can't go in and harvest that 200 inch animal and sell it for yeah. you know what you're asking me to lend for. Like, it, it's just, there's not a... And so you have to look at more traditional, uh, more material items, you know, whether it's um, c cash rent, like you said, or, yeah. you know, timber, which, you know, structures. I know you said before is um, considered differently by different uh, lenders, structures. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting for us as Whitetail Properties Real Estate, you know, land specialists to kind of connect those dots for, you know, our buyers who ultimately, they do want those things, but they also want that hunting utility. Right. You know, it's kind of the, the, the floater out there. It's hard right now, I think, especially because like a big point I always make to people is there's a difference between market value mm -hmm. and comparable value, right? Yeah. Based off the comparisons that we're seeing. Um, so like historically, you know, it maybe was at $2,000 an acre. The market right now is driving it to $4,000 an acre. And, you know, we're not saying that it's you know, that it shouldn't sell for $4,000 an acre. It's just looking back through history. Mm -hmm. Here's what previous sales support that value being. And we just kind of have to play it on the safe side. Is, um, it, I think that, that's always a big piece that we try to like enforce with our borrowers. Like we're not telling you not to pay the higher amount for it because right now the market's telling you it's, you know, it will sell for that. We know that, yep. but we have to look at history. And so I, I guess that conservative approach has you guys fairly tied to agriculture because it's, always been here you know like since land was sold as private property mm -hmm. you know agriculture has kind of been a thing as has um you know livestock livestock yep. you know and you know timber is has always been there but it's it's very you know fluctuates a lot you know as in price guys yeah. know you know and then the deer thing is so i guess 
kind of what I'm curious is like what at what point do you you know d- does like lending institutions start to consider a new element of value to say like hey this is something that can be leaned against or it cannot you know t- timber is probably one of those ones that some some people are on board with you know and, and some maybe not so much and we're I guess kind of curious why or how that would work yeah so I think like timber is a big piece um and so like I mentioned Rural First is part of Farm Credit Mid-America, right? And so Farm Credit Mid-America does more, are more like true ag loans. So if somebody's buying a property for like true farm production, mm-hmm. right? So they're going to run cattle on it or even like true timber production. They are buying that property with the only intent to harvest that timber, sell it, and then maybe resell the property or replant it, you know, for future timber cutting. Um, so there's different ways that we look at it. On the rural first side, which is kind of where we do like our recreational land loans and our lot loans, as well as like new home constructions and home purchases, we do not necessarily give additional value to timber, right? Because the way that we are looking at it is, yes, that timber's there, but once it's cut, it's not going to, you know, add any value to that property, Mm -hmm. right? You still have your property, um, whereas on the ag side for the right buyers, there's additional ways that they can take into consideration the value that that timber adds to the property um, through some less conventional, I guess, routes of financing is the best way to put it. So I think every lender is different in how they look at it, but traditionally your timber value does not go into your actual like comparable value because once that timber is harvested, that value is not there anymore. And I get that question a lot in some of my northern counties, like about mineral rights. So it's something yep. that's really common that people are like, well, you know, this property comes with the mineral rights and that's great. And I'm glad that it does, because then you're not going to inhibit the, you know, use of your property should you not want to, you know, cash in on those mineral rights. However, at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily give that an additional value. It's just part of that property that you are purchasing. Isn't that so, it's so crazy because like around here, you know, when we pull comps, uh, you know, the ones with mineral rights, um, double astronomical doubles, sales. you know, and, and typically it's, it's a mineral based company an energy based company that is buying that property for $20,000 an acre when it should be 4,000 an acre. Yeah. Um, and that goes back into that, like that market value versus comparable value right. that we're looking and I assume right. that most of those companies, like those energy companies, they're not going saying, you know, hey, Emily and Amanda, I need a loan for this. They're just buying that straight out in cash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think in, in Emily, maybe it was you that said it yesterday. Uh, you know, you said that in your area, the majority of your portfolio is recreational land. Right. And yep. Amanda, is that would you say yours is similar or kind of split? Yeah, I would say I would say mine's probably a little more split. Um, but probably not off by far. Um, so I have a, a couple areas that, you know, people are moving out of cities to, to build in. So I've seen an uptick in the last couple of years, definitely since COVID, obviously. Yep. Um, people, you know, they're, they're buying the land, but ultimately they're going to try to live on it too. Um, so while what might have been a few years ago, a rec purchase is ending up being like a lot with intent to build on it now. Got it. Does it seem like that trend is really stagnated, like within the last month? Um, surprisingly, we were just talking about this earlier. So I think sometimes it's hard for us to tell people what their rate is because we've been lending in the last few years on like historically low rates. Mm -hmm, Um, but if you look in the trend over the last 10 to 15 years, we're still in an excellent rate environment. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that people 
realistically are saying like, Hey, I think the rates are going to continue going up. I'd rather get in now. Mm-hmm. So I've been super busy the last month or so. Yeah. Um, and in while construction is tough right now, those people that are looking for houses or building houses, they know the rates are going to grow up. So it's kind of an offset in that construction piece price versus the, the price of lending. Yeah. Kind of yeah. interesting, isn't it? Like, <clears throat> granted, I wasn't around for like the Great Depression and stuff, but it seems like at, at that time, the way I've heard it told, you know, <laughs> when when stuff started clamming up, you know, people stopped spending. They, yeah. they held on to the money. They yeah. wanted it all back. This time around. It, doesn't it seem like that's kind of happening and people are just like, yeah, well, I'm still, doing it anyways. Well, I think what's interesting, and I talked with Emily and Amanda about it yesterday is like my personal situation with having assets, you know, I'm looking at my paper investments and they're just like tumbling at this point, right. you know, and, and then I look at my land investments and I'm like, oh, there it is. It's still there. It looks great. Like I can make improvements. There's maybe timber to harvest. And, you know, so I think that again, even though we know those rates are going up, with the way that everything else, inflation and the mar- stock market from a paper standpoint is, is going, you know, land still becomes that secure investment. Um, you know, and, and it will, even when your stock market's tumbling, your land likely is still appreciating. Um, so I think it becomes that, that investment piece that, you know, people are looking at and saying, well, if I can, if I can make it work and I can make the numbers work, then, you know, it's a tangible asset for me. Since you mentioned it there, Amanda, what what are histi- historically low rates, you know, and then kind of kind of where are those sitting currently? So on like a piece of rec ground right now, a 15 year, we do a fixed rate option too, which I think kind of sets us apart than a lot of the local banks. So because we keep those in house, we do a fixed rate option. I think today rates are right around five, six or five, six, five on a 15 year fixed. Yep. Um, that is, I mean, that's probably what it was. 18, 19, when you say it was in that range? Yeah, it, I mean, that is lower than what it was when I started lending in 2016 mm-hmm. for the same company, right? Um, so I think the the rate environment that we were in 12 months ago where rates were in, you know, low threes, maybe upper twos on some pieces of property, wow. those are just shockingly low. Like, that <laughs> right. is not normal, right? Free money. And so, yeah, yeah. basically free money. Um, and so, yes, it is a huge jump from you know, where we were 12 months ago to where we are now, this is still a good rate. Um, and I know everybody, you know, here's their parents or grandparents talking about, well, whenever I bought my first house, you know, it was at 13%. Um, and so, you know, five, 6%, whether it's a house land, that's still a great investment. Like it is still very feasible for the majority of people to be able to invest in land at that rate of borrowing. Yeah. I mean, it's more than you're making on your paper investments and they're not making more land. So, well, and I think that's an interesting point. Cause we, we, you know, I've heard that kickback. I, I broke down kind of my investment in this Ohio place up in Meigs County, Amanda. And, and, um, you know, just my thought process around it. And, uh, I think I'm at 5% on that one. Um, and, you know, somebody in- instantly jumped on and they're like, well, you know, you got 5% in interest in that. If you look at those payments, you know, that's a lot of money. And it's like, w- yeah, but my end goal in terms of timber harvest and eventually selling cash that flow. for more. Cash flow. Yeah, it's cash flow oh, type of stuff. That's what I want to hear these guys' perspective on like the way that we've approached it, which, you know, generally speaking, I, I know it's correct. But specifically, like for our situation, the way that we've kind of addressed, you know, de- debt in general, and, and certainly interest rates are a part of that is is just with cash flow. And mm-hmm. again, a general term, the ability but like, to pay on the loan, and you so know, pay our mortgage. Exactly. So like you have a mortgage, mm-hmm. you know, on a, all my properties, a principal debt, and also an interest rate that you're paying on, you know, 
these properties that you mm-hmm. own, mm-hmm. you know, in addition to, you know, you've got a business that generates revenue and stuff to pay for those, mm-hmm. but you're also trying to supplement that with cash flow from the property. hundred percent. You know, is that sound right? Like that's, that's the right strategy to approach that, so whether it's a timber harvest, uh, cash rent from property, mm-hmm. leasing it in some situations, mm-hmm. uh, renters. I have a rental income from, it's small, but it's, you know, 400 bucks a month for so, my renter. So from an investor standpoint, it seems like the art to this thing or the trick of the trade is to understand, you know, interest rates, you know, and, and how your debt is coming in versus the cash flow you can produce from, from that asset. And I guess not to get too deep in it, guys, <laughs> well, just, just because I think it, people have a tough time understanding uh, an amortization table or schedule, yeah. um, like out of the gate. So like I just closed on my property in January, I'm paying uh principal, interest, and escrow, right? My interest payments per month are significantly higher than they're going to be, what, seven, eight years from now? What, what is that? Is, is there a generalized break point there when it's like, okay, look at what you're pay- paying in interest now. And then, for example, Amanda, you said about 15-year fix. You know, at what point does that start to break to where my principal payments are exceeding my interest payments? I don't, honestly, I don't know that answer off the top of my head, right? The biggest thing is you're, you're paying more interest because your loan balance is high, right? As you are go over time and you're making those uh, full principal and interest payments, you're paying down that loan balance so that your interest is going to decrease each month, right? Because your loan balance, your principal balance is decreasing as well. Um, So, you know, that is something that we always get asked about is like, balloon payments or do you guys offer interest only payments if I'm planning to flip this property in mm-hmm. you know, 18 months or whatever? We do not because out of the gate, we want you to gain equity in that property. We want you to pay down on that principal balance. Yep. Um, and so anytime you know, that somebody can pay extra, so we don't have any prepayment penalties. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime that you can pay extra on your principal amount, you're even faster uh, reducing that amount of interest that you're also paying. And, and I think that's a big point when we start talking about how to make money on that property is that the higher that balance is, the more interest you're paying, which means you're, you're making less profit on that. You know, you're taking less equity into that property. As you pay that thing down, that interest also decreases. More money goes to the principal, more equity, every payment happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think people fail to, to look at that. If you are in the process of flipping something, right, maybe you're not as worried about paying that down faster because you just want to get that to a great place, flip it. And then, you know, you make your money on top of it. I, I imagine the guy that invented the amortization tables just rolling around in a tub of money somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always look at mine and I'm I was like, like, it's brilliant. Yeah. I'm like, okay, in 2037, I will hit my break point yeah. to where my principal is. So, I, you know, I think you, and you guys brought up a really good situation there in terms of equity. Um, and this is, somewhere where I'm at right now and that I've got multiple assets. Um, h- how does Rural First handle, I, I guess it's a, a portfolio-based client, to where if I have assets with you guys, am I able to leverage equity from those assets versus taking cash out of my pocket for down payments and stuff? All the time. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> we love it. So um, it definitely makes it easier, right, when we have your whole portfolio um, as far as, you know, different mortgages, Right. One of the big ways that we take advantage or that you as a borrower can take advantage of what we offer is we do additional collateral 
all day long, right? So, you know, maybe you're looking at purchasing that property in Meigs County, but um, your Eastern Kentucky property, uh, you've got a ton of equity built up into it because you've been paying on it for a couple of years. We can do kind of um, put a lien on both tracks um, and use that equity towards the down payment on the new purchase. Love that. Um, We've done it and it doesn't just stop at two, you know, tracks. You could do two, three, four, however many you need, as long as you have that equity. The big thing is we have to be the primary lien holder, right? So if another lender has that first mortgage, we're not going to go in second place behind them, mm-hmm. but we will go in second place behind ourselves. Gotcha. That makes sense. And uh, I think that what I utilize a lot too, when it comes to like these multiple properties, it's it's sometimes thinking outside of the box too, when it comes to interest rates. So I can take your primary dwelling as long as you're outside of city limits. Um, so a lot of people want to, you know, collateralize their, their dwelling because they have a lot of equity in it. And that's always where you're going to get your best rate too. Um, so that's always something that we look at doing as well. If we're looking for an additional source, um, that's not cash money. Mm. Interesting. So structurally, like how is that different from like a home equity line of credit? Mm-hmm. Well, so a couple of different ways, actually. So home equities, a lot of times are going to be a variable rate. Um, they're going to be termed for like a shorter term, normally like a 10 year term. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be separate from your mortgage. If you're collateralizing your primary dwelling and we take your first mortgage and you're off, you're going to have just, you know, the, the one loan on that, you're going to be at a fixed rate and you're able to term it out a little longer. So if you're trying to cash flow a little easier, it makes it nice because we can take that primary dwelling out to 30 years, whereas just a typical piece of land, we cannot take out to 30 years. We were capped at 25 years um, on recreational ground. Um, we, we link up your down payment with your term, so we're, we, but we do cap at 25. So it just makes it a little easier to cash flow with less money out of pocket um, mm. when you involve the primary residence. Well, so what if you don't, though? So because so like what the home equity line of credit mm-hmm. allows you to do is essentially be a cash buyer. You know, I, I can go and buy any piece of property with mm-hmm. my line of credit. You know, it's, sure. is there a way to, to achieve that buying power? by leveraging assets in a, in a portfolio like like you're talking about. You're like, I've got two or three pieces of property here. Now, can I establish a line of credit leaned against those assets mm-hmm. as opposed to financing and leaning against them individually, I guess, on a situational basis? Uh, is, yeah, there, so is there a way to do that? With and it, This is going to vary based off lender, right, and mm-hmm. what area you're in in your specific financial position. Right. So I will caveat sure. what I'm going to say. With this whole that. conversation is I, prefaced I told by them, that. I told them that yesterday. I said, hey, listen, yeah. if it's going to vary by state, by area, just make sure we say it out of the gate so that somebody in Wisconsin's not like, I don't know. Emily said this and she's the yeah. authority. I, I'm not the specialist in lending in Wisconsin, <laughs> um, Florida, Texas, New York, any of those places. Right. Yeah. So I can only speak specifically about what we offer and what I have seen in our market. over, you know, the years of experience. Um, So typically your lines of credit are going to be tied to your home, right? There, to my knowledge, there are not usually lines of credit for the average person that tie up different pieces of vacant land or like investment type properties. Okay. Okay. Um, Just because it's not, um, it's a little bit riskier. So that's why when it's typically tied to your home, because if anybody's you know, going to make their payment, it's going to be on something that has their home involved. Um, I see. That's going to be our safest or most secure way of lending. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So we do not specifically, we do not offer a line of credit using vacant land or investment properties. 
right? Now you may be able to get something like that through a more commercial lender um, or like a, a business loan when somebody's looking at that mm-hmm. through like investment piece, um, but we do not offer it. Um, there's ways of doing it like cash out, right? If you have a ton of equity and properties and you want to do it like a cash out refi or something like that, we absolutely can. Um, so, so there's still options. It's just not a actual line of credit. Um, and I think sometimes people line of credit, they're easy, right? To get, especially if it's on your primary residence, it seems like an easy fix and it is a quick fix. Like Amanda said, it is typically a variable rate. Um, and you're also typically build interest only for at least a portion of that. Right. So if you're careful, you know, when, uh, it flips over and you start being billed principal, uh, your financial position may be completely different than whenever you initially put that debt on there and that can cause some other issues or concerns. A bypass that I use a lot of times for that though is if a client has a home equity line on their primary dwelling, we can uh, they can buy that property they're interested in on that home equity line. I just get proof that they paid for that property and then we can refinance it on our side. So you still have the buying power as cash using your home equity line, um, but then we can also turn it into like a fixed rate and, and finance that out as like a recreational ground mm-hmm. later. So you have the flexibility on the front end and then we can come behind later and give you a little more structure. So um, I was just speaking with a lender on a home equity line of credit for myself the other day. Uh, and I assume that the reason for this answer she gave me is because it's a variable rate. But I'll let you guys confirm or comment on this is that the, the rate was like 3.2%. It was mm-hmm. like extremely low. Uh, is, yeah. That's because it's variable and short term, like you said. So a lot of times like home equity lines are based more off of, they're, they're more market-based. They're based off of prime typically. Gotcha. Um, everyone is different when it comes to that. So again, that, that's going to vary from place to place, but typically um, equity lines are based off of the prime rate. And that's obviously a little lower. Whereas your longer term rates are going to be based off of like your 10 year treasury and some of your longer term securities. And those are very stable right now. And so that's why you're seeing that increase on, on the mortgage rates, the mm-hmm. longer term Gotcha. And I think the interesting, and obviously like we're not financial advisors here is uh, there, there obviously is some advantages to being a cash buyer in the market. There's, but if you're pre-qual and you know that, you know, those funds are coming through barring, it doesn't appraise essentially. And if it doesn't appraise, if you can make up the gap, then you're in the same position. You're coming with the funds either way. Um, like when I bought my Ohio place, you know, I wasn't necessarily a cash buyer, but I was like I had, I had the funds, like it was ready to go, you know? So when you're ready to close, we're ready to close. So, you know, and I, you did that through pre-qualification. Yep. Well, see, and I always thought that was interesting as, as a buyer is like, I, I, I did, I still frankly kind of don't understand why a cash buyer is more valuable than a, a pre-qualified buyer. I think in the appraiser sense, maybe, because if it doesn't appraise, then you're going to have to make up the gap from a prequal standpoint. If if they're only loaning- Well, so 80%. what if I have both though? So what if I have like a, a home equity line of credit mm-hmm. and I have, I'm have i pre-qualified, mm-hmm. I, I can make up that difference because I've, I've got that For line sure. of credit. So I'm essentially a half cash buyer. Yeah. And I don't know if it matters half cash? in this market as much. What doesn't? If you're a cash buyer. Well, you hear that all it the sound, time. Though. It sounds good. Oh, to I a lost seller. this house to a cash buyer. I lost this house to a cash buyer. It's like, yeah. how do all these people have all this cash? That can't be the case. Yeah, I, I don't think it is. I think if you have the choice, and this is just me. And again, maybe if it's I'm buying a property for the long haul, like this, this is the property that I'm either going to live on, or it's a secondary property that I'll never sell. I have no plans ever selling. 
you want to pay that down. You want to be debt free on that. Sure. That's different than probably some of the things that we're talking about in that. Like I want to own this farm for five to seven years and then I want to sell it and make a profit on it. Yeah. Um, I'm not as concerned as being, you know, having that thing paid off completely because I know I'm going to sell it in five to seven years. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have cash flow. Yeah, than, taking on than debt be, is part of that. That's... Than be cash poor, basically, because yeah. I paid everything off on that thing out of the gate. So, you know, I think it's just situational um, on that. Um, I guess we're talking about kind of the the ways to leverage those different assets, guys. Um, if let's, I'll use my example because maybe it's different. Appreciate you guys bearing with us, by the way. Yeah. No, we're kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, so, so I've got a primary residence in Pennsylvania that has 28 acres on it. And I've got a lot of equity in that place because that's not one of your core states. Are you able to use that asset to collateralize or no? The yes. answer is yes. Yes. Um, and it just kind Amanda, of Amanda's on. smiling and Emily's shaking her head. Yes. It, so we, so because of how we operate, there are um, territories in essence for each farm credit. So we would have to get a territorial concurrence to do that. So that gets a little um, gotcha. messy in terms of like, it doesn't always make sense that we do it. Sometimes it makes sense that you work with that local farm credit. Um, okay. So that's why we kind of talk through that, like anything outside of our, farm credits territory mm-hmm. we kind of talk about what options are available so I, I guess i say that in the in the sense of um you know i've got three property assets including that primary residence one in pennsylvania one in ohio one in kentucky you know and i plan on trying to continue to build that portfolio as a as a buyer does it make sense for me to have all three of those assets with someone like rural first to then be able to leverage all of those assets to continue to build that portfolio? If I personally was going to do it, yes, I would put it in um, all in one place. That's what I've attempted to do in my own personal finances is bring it to bring it here. This isn't where I started out with um, some of my mortgages, but the way that they, the farm credit does a couple of things and the way that they um, can maneuver, your, you kind of own your interest right here mm-hmm. um, with some conversion options. So I brought a couple different properties to farm credit just because it makes it a lot easier and they know me and they know my history and they know my property values because they've all been appraised. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, it made a lot of sense to bring it all in one house because it's just a lot easier. Um, where they're in different states in your situation, I think that makes it a little tougher. So finding the right option for that is going to be the key um, and, and kind of talking through what your game plan is down the line, because you want to make sure that you're not um, taking it somewhere that isn't going to have the flexibility or isn't going to have the options available to help you with, with where you want to end up. Yeah. Cause I mean, I look at it as my goal is to try to leverage those assets and their equity to continue to buy land without having to pull 20% out of my pocket every time I'd find a property. Um, and, and I guess back up there, is that what is common with rural first 20% down? So not necessarily and and it is, you know, property based as well as credit score based, right? So okay. things are going to vary depending on what exactly type of property you're looking at and your financial position once again, right? Um, you know, with us, if you're buying a rec track, so, you know, hunting property or vacant land or land that you're wanting to build a house on, we'll do a 15 year term with 15% down as long as you have a 720 credit score. Right. Um, that's a so big difference. That, I mean, that's saving 5% yeah. of cash out of my pocket. Cause most of right. the people I've talked to are like, yeah, 80% LTV, meaning 20% down and down from there mm-hmm. and down from there. Yeah. yeah. 
And then we do have, you know, additional options as well. So the longer the term you go, of course, your down payment's going up as well. So then you'd be looking at a 20-year term, 20% down, 25-year term, 25% down. Okay. And like I said earlier, we do cap if it is a land purchase on 25 I like that. Down. Those numbers are easy yeah. to remember. Yeah. So it makes yeah. sense. You match them up, down payment with term. Yeah. So if I'm... Um... And obviously interest rates going to vary with each of those terms, 15 being the best, 25 being a little bit higher than that. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at that from my angle, right, if I can, as long as I can cash flow the mortgage payment, right, then I want to leverage my equity to pay the down payment from my other assets. You see my portfolio building, don't you? Well, no, (laughs) no. Yes, you do. I do. But you reminded me of a, I'm just telling the story really quick. Here's where we get on different rabbit holes. When I was first, this is not that long ago. This is a couple years ago when my wife and I first got married. We went and bought a couch, and it was like the biggest purchase we made at the time. It was like 600 bucks. And when I was checking out, the guy was like, Do you want to finance this? It's 0% financing. And I'm the dummy. So I said, Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. sure." And I was like, It doesn't cost me any more money to pay for this over time. He's like, No. I was like, Okay, sure. Yeah. And, uh, after three months of like writing those checks, like making the payments, I was like, I'm just going to pay for this. Yeah, like, it was so ridiculous. stupid. It was so inconvenient to make those payments. I just wanted to get it done. Uh, I'll, I'll add on to I'm your sorry. story just because it, it's kind of related. So um, uh, Emily, my wife, Emily, has been nagging me for like uh, two years that we need a new mattress. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it seems fine. You know? Yeah. I wake up, my neck hurts. I don't know. Is that because of my mattress? <laughs> You're so, like kids in Africa sleep on the dirt. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I'm looking up, I'm looking stuff on Amazon and stuff and she's like, no, we got to go. So we go to, I haven't been to a mattress store in a decade, probably. Well, I mean, how often do you buy listen, a mattress? I'm pretty firm on my stance that those places are just money laundering. There, there's nobody ever in there. I know. So I walk. Have in, you ever seen anybody in a mattress? No. Store? So I walk into this, I walk into this mattress store last night. This is just yesterday. Walk into this mattress. Nobody there, right? Just the guy sitting in the back. Of course not. And, uh, <laughs> he's like, I'll put my money counter. So away. You, you lay on this bed and it goes through like, okay, here's all your pressure points. <laughs> and you know, I don't know, like I haven't been in 10 years. I'm like, wow, technology is really advanced. Like this thing's it prints out, like, here's my top mattresses. And so we start going through, you lay on this one. And you're like, okay. Like, I like this one, $2,000 for a mattress. And I'm not even talking like one of these Tempur-Pedic ones. I'm talking about like a standard mattress. Mm. And I like went back and I was like, I paid like 600 bucks 10 years ago for a mattress. This is recent, fairly recent. Last night. Oh dude, buy, buy a, a roll up, go online and buy one from like, uh, there's purple. Yeah. I've seen them. Yeah. They're awesome. And it's like 600 bucks for a mattress, a big, mm. a king. That's what we have. It's amazing. I will say Tempur-Pedic's pretty hard to beat. I thought my husband and I, we almost got a divorce like our first couple months of marriage because he went out and bought a mattress without consulting with Oh, see, um, and that's that's oh, where I, w- I was like, okay, well, I'll just that's buy all, this That's one. all it would take? And she's like, <laughs> no. Like, that was our first big purchase, like as, you know, yeah. a married couple. Uh, this mattress and it was an insane amount of money. It was a Tempur-Pedic. I'm like, I just can't believe you did this. You know, whatever. First time I slept on it, I was like, I'm never going to be mad at you again about this. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and you, you, again, per the investments, you think about it and you use it pretty much every night for how right. many years, like, it, you know, your penny, it's pennies on the day that yeah. you use the mattress. Sometimes you got to splurge. It's crazy though. I was just like looking through, he's like, yeah, that one over there. I was like, yeah, I like that one. It's like, a, he's like 3,600. I'm like, no, I don't like it that much. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. But and, it goes back to investments, right? Like if you can yeah. you know, look at 
how much you're paying per day to use it for five years. Uh, but I did end up buying one. So. <laughs> So Mainly too, because too it was such an experience. I was like, I am done with this. I was like, I will take that one right there. Bring it on Friday. Take my old one out. And I was like, are you happy? She's like, I guess. I was like, all right, we're done. Did you ever see that Key and Peele uh, short about testing out the mattresses? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I'm imagining. <laughs> Anyways, off top. See, there's there's the rabbit holes we end up my going mom, down. <laughs> listen, after, shortly after that, my mom bought us uh, like $150 pillows as like our wedding gift or whatever. And my mom, my uh my wife was like mad that she bought she's like why would you spend 150 dollars we've bought like two more sets of them since because it's just yeah that was the next discussion on the way home pillows because i was because they were like the guy was trying to get me to buy pillows and i was like no dude i'm negotiating you yeah. down at this point can't have, can't have a not... bow without sights and releases can't yeah. have a bed without you know pillows and i that's what i said to emily my wife i was like uh i was like well you know, I'm done buying like $20 pillows. She's like, you think I spent 20 bucks on your pillows or like five? And I was like, well, no wonder my neck feels like it's in a question mark. Yeah. You remember those chickens we used to have? I literally made them myself. <laughs> so anyways, investments yeah. for long-term. What were we talking about before that? Um, leveraging assets. Oh, bringing in uh, from an out of state. Um, mm -hmm. because that's, you know, my, my core, um, my core buying area, I would say is Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, maybe West Virginia at some point. I don't know. Um, and, and I deal at least and this is where Jared and I probably differ a little bit. You know, most of my properties are timber tracks. Um, cause yeah. I'm, I'm Jer looking, Jeremy's a hilly woods, Kentucky, yeah. West Virginia kind of guy. I'm an agriculture. You're an I like guy. flat. I'm a flat lander. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and part of that is, you know, I look at it as, well, that timber's security and that I could cut it at some point and I could, if I get into a bind and I can make money on it. Um, you know, I think your side is you're comfortable with ag mostly because that's what your family farm is. Yeah. And then also you're looking at it as a deer hunting track. An ideal track for me is, you know, has good deer habitat to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but has some valuable timber assets on it as well mm -hmm. that I can harvest and only improve the hunting aspect of that property. So that way I get my money that I can put, you know, towards the payments on that property and it, it yields the result that I want out of a piece yep. of property. And because of our position, it's still marketable to a, from a hunting utility. Yep. And so my, per my questions earlier, as long as, as a seller at some point, you know, both of us, we can bridge the gap between um you know market value and appraise and appraise value if that's yep. the right thing yep you know that's that's kind of the trick um i think one thing one question i have guys and, and i i've run into it um i guess on my most recent property <clears throat> so that the meg's county piece that i bought amanda has an old farmhouse on it um that is rented by a tenant um so i get some rental income and then it's got like a uh, like a cinder block deer camp basically um that i'm doing some work in that cinder block deer camp only had um, wood burner heat, didn't have anything else in it. Um, and one of the things that I ran into when I was um, getting a mortgage on it is the insurance aspect in that most insurance companies wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole because it had a wood burner on it and, and no other source of, of heat, essentially. Um, and so anyways, it, I, two things. One, I found uh, a company that was like, yep, that's fine. It's a little higher premium, but no big deal. They instantly, within three or four days of closing, came back to me and said, hey, we're, we're set to cancel your policy um, because you have a bunch of old tobacco barns on there that are liabilities. You need to take them down. And Emily, you know, in Kentucky, you don't rip down a 
a, a good tobacco barn. Like that thing Correct. stays standing. You don't, you don't touch that thing. And so I called them and I was like, well, no, I'm not ripping those down. And so they basically said, well, if you don't, your policy's canceled. And so, you know, it seems like, and I eventually found one that would take that, but that that's a big thing. I think for anyone listening, um, you know, it's one thing to find the lender. Um, I would assume you guys require insurance on those properties. Sometimes it's probably the best answer to give you. Okay. Um, a lot of times we don't, it's a 20% and 10. So if, if the value of the properties versus the value of the land is less than 10% of the total, then we don't require insurance on them. So you're saying if so the, the structure it's $10,000 or if it's like, so that, sorry, that is erasing. Yeah, no, I had to like, wait a minute, what is she asking? So like, it, it depends on how much value is in that structure, right? Okay. If the majority of the value is in the land, yes. then we can get comfortable and support not having insurance Interesting. coverage on the structure. So like, for example, I had a property the other day, um, the barn appraised for like, I don't know, $10,000 and it was a $500,000 farm, yep. right? No we don't need that $10,000 barn yep. to be secure in our lending. So we did not require insurance coverage. Interesting. Right? Where's the line um, with that? Of course, if it's a higher value, we need that value in the structure to be secure, then yes, insurance is going to be required. So, um, but I think it goes back to one of the really nice pieces of working with somebody who is local and understands the area where you're buying yep. these properties. We have, we know people right? Like yeah. um, I have borrowers. I have a ton of out-of-state borrowers because I do primarily recreational land. Um, so I have a lot of people that come from, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, Florida, wherever. Mm -hmm. So they're calling around. They're like, well, I called, you know, my regular insurance agent. They can't do it. I called this, this person. They can't do it. And I know well enough to say, hey, here's the agent that I recommend. Um, they just, you know, offered insurance on a very similar property. They get it taken care of. No big deal. Interesting. Um, so like, we know the market. We know, you know. Who, who That's super critical because that. I want to know where that line is at, though. Yeah. So I guess like uh, I bought a farm. We, we were very transparent. Uh, the farm I bought, sell price was three seventy, um, and I think the farmhouse was valued at fifty grand, probably. Mm -hmm. Would you, in that case, require insurance on that farmhouse? So typically, that cutoff, how we look at it, is five percent of the property value or okay. $10,000. So if that structure yeah, is greater screwed. than 5% or $10,000, but that is not a hard line, right? There, sure. There's always exceptions to rules. And that's another benefit of, you know, working with a company that understands mm -hmm. properties and, and values is there's mm -hmm. exceptions to every rule. But you're not even close there, right? So like you're going to well, insurance. Well, and, and it makes sense for me to have insurance on the farmhouse. The cabin was the one that in my opinion, didn't need it. And where I was getting blocked on it was that no insurance company would touch the farmhouse because the cabin was on the same property with the wood burner. That was the yeah. issue. Uh, or yeah, because like, of those barns. Like we may very well require insurance on the farmhouse, but not on the auxiliary yep. you know, structures. Yep. Like if there's a tobacco barn or you yep. know, a small like hunting cabin we see or... Yeah. And so that's where my structures ended up setting out. I put it on the farmhouse. I opted to put it on the cabin because they would, but I didn't cover any of the other structures. And where are you guys pulling that value from? Is that from like just the, the list? Appraisal. The appraisal. You guys re would require an appraisal to do the financing. That would dictate how much is being paid for each of the assets. Yep. Gotcha. On every property, we're going to have an appraisal completed. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. And, and I guess, um, 
again, just because I'm selfish and it's relevant to me right now. Um, I thought it was interesting. You guys brought up about keeping those in in-house portfolio and talking about um, being able to survey. In fact, we've got a listing that that kind of would fall into the same category here coming up. Um, in terms of the ability to survey out, let's say that farmhouse and a few acres from the rest of the property, because we want to sell it off, which I, I will here in, in my case, um, you guys are able to do that a lot easier. And then basically instead of refinancing, you just reamortize the loan for the balance. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we can just do a release of, you know, whatever you're selling off. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we're still within our collateral standards or limitations, right? Um, and, and when you say that, the, I, I'm sorry, Emily, when you say that limitations, you mean still the loan to value ratio? Correct. Yes. Okay. However, your loan was approved is kind of the way that we look at that. So if you were approved at 85%, we want to make sure by releasing that, we are still within that that guideline. And if we're not, then you guys would take some of the money that we sold that piece off for to get back into check. That that's a very important thing because I know it's something that I've talked to other people on Instagram, even from listening to this that have brought up and said, well, like, I don't even know how that works. Like if I survey that out and sell it, like, do I have to put all that towards the loan? And the answer is no, it just has to be in check with whatever that original LTV was. I like that. That makes sense. So is the time to do that after purchase or during purchase? initial well in my case i'm saying after purchase because i haven't subdivided it and now i want to survey out that house and acreage sell that off my thing was let's say i sell it for sixty five thousand dollars. do i have to take and put that onto payment of my loan not all of it sounds like not all of it in check yeah or yeah or none if it's still in check with the the ltv so i guess would you um would you potentially have to reappraise the property or, or how does that look? Not always. Yeah. Okay. It just kind of depends on like for some people, maybe we had an appraisal five years ago. Right. And we could use that old appraisal, but based off the old appraisal, you have to put $20,000 right towards mm-hmm. your loan. But if the customer wants, you know, a new appraisal, we can have it reappraised. And with the way the market has been over, you know, the last couple of years, it very well may even out and we don't require any funds. Because that's something that I've looked at is, yeah, yeah, I know that I want to sell that and I'm okay if, you know, I sell for 20 or 65,000, I have to pay 25 back into the loan to make sure that it's balanced. That's, that's fine. The other 45 goes in the bank account and now it's my cash flow. Um, But, you know, with, like she said, the market, the way it is like that property that appraised for 390 might now appraise for 425 and I may not have to put any of that back in. It can all go in my bank account to cash flow, mm, mm-hmm. which seems to be the critical thing. I mean, that's, you know, we've talked to several different people on it and, and, you know, the Iowa, Illinois group is completely different than us in terms of their cash renting tillable ground at 200 plus dollars an acre. They're making, you know, hand over fist money in some cases. Yeah. We're getting like 35. Out yeah. Here. And so ours is like a timber cut. Um, maybe if we're cash renting some, a hunting lease, I mean, there's very few things, rental income from a structure. There's very few things that are cash flowing these businesses. So wedding barn seems to be popular these days. <laughs> yeah. So we, we've got to figure out the way to essentially make these single activities, whether it's a timber cut or a sell off of some property to end up putting that cash flow in the bank account so that that mortgage can come. In my case, I use my businesses to essentially rent those properties for photo video shoots and stuff like that, that helps bring some cash flow into the business that then ends up paying the mortgage. Um, but you know, 
it's hard if you don't have that you've got to find these single activities because if you don't have cash in the bank you can't pay your mortgage that's great you put 20 percent down now you're broke well here we'll just ask you guys what's what's the best way and feel free to start with agriculture because i know that's it's the most common what's the best way to generate income you know from a from a property i don't think that there is a truly best way right i think it's all very situational and where you're located yeah, they market um, you know, the, the most common things that we see is of course agricultural production right so whether you're leasing uh, to a farmer for crops or you know, for pasture ground. Can I ask you while uh, we're on agriculture uh, too, Emily, it, is it common to see that pay for the mortgage? Is, is it common to see that actually pay for the property itself or is that fairly uncommon? So it can, right? Um, we have people that, you know, that's how they're, they're justifying, I will say, being able to afford the farm right, that they're looking at purchasing their plan is they're going to lease it out. And, you know, we want to know those numbers, but we also don't necessarily, um, I don't want to word this, we don't, we don't project income, right? So we're basing it off of what is your historical income from maybe it's your W-2 job, or maybe you have another farming operation. That's the income we're using, not the income you're planning to produce from that farm you know, in the next five years, right? Because that's not a done deal, right? It's not always the safest bet, but it absolutely can. You can put those properties into production or have a game plan uh, to help with that cash flow and to pay for it. We just aren't doing our lending based off of that income. Does that make sense? Yeah. Into the weeds. Well, and I, so I work with a lot of out-of-state borrowers too that are solely looking for wet ground. And so they'll tell me that, that they're looking for a property that they can sell off a lot on it. So if there is something that's got like some good road frontage mm. or if they can find something um, that maybe has a small access to the front end of the, the track that they can um, break into another parcel and sell off, I would say probably 50 to 75% of the, the people that are buying that ground out of state are looking for wow. something like that. So they can sell that piece off. And with us, obviously, it's super easy to do that. So I would say the majority of my deals are funded that way is by people being strategic in those properties. Yeah. It seems like in the Midwest, that would that be a great way to do it. You know, it's like if, you know, if I'm a guy from Pennsylvania looking to buy a couple hundred acres in the Midwest to hunt, I would be looking for a track that's, you know, 60, 70 percent tillable and has road frontage so I can put two or three lots on it, farm the rest of it and hunt the timber. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of understand how, like, what are the options on that property? Because that and, will pay for it. That yeah, should, that for should sure. pay for it. Yeah, and lo as long as it perks and things like that where sure. you, you put those survey pieces at. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it, there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it, you know, and you have to be open to things that maybe you didn't initially think of when you bought the place um, to make sure that it pays. And, it, and again, it depends if it's that one property that you're either going to live on or that's going to be your forever secondary property and hunting property, or if it's truly an investment piece. Um, because I think each of those has two different mindsets. You know, one, you want to pay it off as quick as possible so you don't have to pay the interest long term. The other is, you know, I want to have cash flow and I want to sell this thing for a profit and and then do it all over again on another piece of ground. Um, so, yeah, I think it I think it becomes pretty big on that. And and so going back on some of the timber stuff that you guys talked about, you know, uh, Emily, I know for sure in your area, it's it's a big deal since you guys are basically appraising and valuing the property with without the timber necessarily. 
um, you don't have too much of an effect when somebody goes in and does a, a, a cut on there, um, you know, and sell it essentially because you're looking at what the value of the land is flat. Right. Got yep. it. Yeah. We are looking at that comparable value, not necessarily, you know, that market value of what somebody would pay if that timber is still standing. Yeah. Um, so we do like, I have a lot of borrowers, um, who are buying these recreational tracks and they say, Hey, why well, I know I'm going to timber this in five years and be able to get 50% of my purchase price based off that timber. And then I'm going to pay it down. That's great. Um, when you're ready to pay it down, bring us the money and we'll re-amortize that balance for you, right? Yeah. Um, we, we don't have to necessarily have it reappraised at that point or anything like that. If you can timber it if, and pay down your loan, then we're happy, you're happy. Yep, So that makes sense. Yeah, because I think that's that's the kind of stuff that, you know, from a how to make money, that's an option. Obviously, uh, government programs like Equip and stuff is an option to get one-time payments on things. So there's a lot of different ways to try to fund. I mean, the key is number one, don't go into this and, and outpunt your coverage, right? Don't go in and, and buy a property, even though you could put 20% down and then realize you're going to have trouble making the monthlies. Um, and then number two is try to cash flow that property, you know, with some consistency, whether it's a timber cut and then it's putting it in a government program and getting a one-time payment and then eventually selling it. Like you've, you've got to figure out how to make those monthlies if it's not going to come direct from you know your checking account um and in most cases like at least mine you know i'm i'm operating under an llc when i buy these real estate pieces and so my goal is to minimize the personal investment into that llc every year because it's somehow made money to pay for the mortgage and and if it's got structure utilities and stuff for the rest of that year yeah um yeah so it's pretty Pretty much it. We're obviously learning as we go here. Yeah. Yeah. For That's sure. No, I like the way you guys think. See? It means we're on to something here. Growth of the <laughs> yeah. portfolio. Crucial. There are so many people that are looking to, to find these properties. I think these conversations are crucial um, because not everybody that is listening is probably at the stage that they're ready to commit to that. But I think that getting the keys um, and, and getting those tools in your toolbox to utilize on mm. how to get yourself financially there. Um, is important. I would say we talk to a couple people every day that aren't quite where they need to be in terms of being able to purchase those, but it's good to have these resources and in a conversation we have daily with people is like, here's what you got to do to get where you want to be. So, so get, if you want things, you got to do this. <laughs> so maybe that's a good point. Like let's, um, let's take away maybe the person who's done this and it has property and Jared, you're in this position, you own a primary residence, you're looking for a property what would be the steps that that person would do with rural first to, to get this ball even rolling? Call us, right? That's, that's the first step. Reach out. Um, you know, if, if you know somebody, you know, locally that works for rural first or another similar lender, just call us. I have a ton of people message me on Facebook, like, Hey, how do we start this process? I'm like, all right, here's my number. Call me. Mm -hmm. Um, just so we can walk through, like, I want to know what your, what your end goal is. Right. So it's not just a, Tell me about your financials and let's see if you get approved. It's fill me in. Like, what is your long-term goal with this property? Are you looking to buy multiple properties? Are you at your forever job? Like we want to know all of that backstory so that we can help guide you and coach you to, if you can't afford it now, or maybe you're not ready, how to get ready. Yeah. Right. We, we want to be that trusted partner with you. We don't just want to be like a one-time transaction. Like we're, we're there to help. We're in it for the long run. So I, I think um, first, I, for, first off, if I can, I think that's such an important step because 
I'm one of those people that the first thing I would do is try to learn everything myself, mm-hmm. you know, and that would and be, you don't, that you would be a mistake. Are, our borrowers are not expected to be the experts, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's why we're here. We, exactly. we are the expert on, on rural lending and, and buying land. Like let us, let us help you and let us teach you. You don't have to do all the research. We can kind of fill you in, but it is definitely great whenever you've done some research like that, right. that absolutely helps. Sure. Um, but, but don't feel, I think a lot of people are just scared to make that phone call or to reach out. And I can't help you if, if I don't know that you need help. Yeah. And one of the things we do on the front end, and, and it's a little different than like your traditional lender would do because we're more like relationship based. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to get your balance sheet. So I'm going to look at like what assets that you already have, what liabilities you have. And so I think that um, if you're thinking that you might want to kind of put your toe in the water for something like this, those are numbers you want to start thinking about too. You want to start thinking about, um, you know, what your monthly payments are and what that disposable income is. That way you can kind of be prepared to come to the table to have a good conversation with your lender too. Um, like, here's where I'm at and here's where I can realistically be. Nothing scares me more than a conversation with a borrower on the front end where I'm like, what, what's your budget look like? Or like, what are you thinking that you want to spend? And they're like, I don't know. What can I get qualified for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes me nervous. You know, yeah. that tells me that, that um, there's more conversations that I have to have before we even get there. Like, I want to know what makes sense to you, or I want to know where your comfort level is in that payment to start. Now, maybe I can qualify you for more and maybe that opens some more windows and you think, you know, Hey, I can probably make this thing where I can make that payment work. But what I don't want to do is go in blindly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably easier for somebody to come up with a number that they can afford on a down payment than to go through the calculations themselves 100%. to say like, well, and here's what the monthly payment will be. And I, and I can make those. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that number that's important to know kind of the, the down payment? That's a good place to start. Yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. Or like, Hey, this is the monthly payment I feel comfortable with. So it's, it's you kind of mm-hmm. come into the table with, with what you know, what you bring, you know? Yeah. So it's not just shooting blind. There you go. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point because I think a lot of people, focus so heavily on the down payment because it is a huge chunk for most of these people. It's one of the biggest checks that they're ever going to write. Um, and then they almost take the eye off of, Oh, well then I still need to pay $2,000 a month every month after this. Where's that money coming from? Um, so like in my situation specifically, you know, I'm running a business that's generating revenue. It's mm -hmm. going into a a checking account. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, a year, two years time, I can see, okay, you know, that's created this much income for, for each of these years. Therefore, I'm comfortable with X down payment. Sure. From there, I know that because that revenue is being generated, I, the monthly payments will be fine. Right. You know, as long as it's a yep. realistic term. So mm-hmm. that made more sense for me to start there. I'm running a business, okay. making money. Here's what I can afford. Yeah, and I think that's probably for most people, especially when they're getting ready to buy their first secondary property, right? To where, where I'm at, like I can... I can afford a down payment and I can definitely afford the monthly. My goal now is to not have to bring 15 or 20% down every time, but leverage the equity on my existing assets because I've been paying on them Mm -hmm. and keep that cash in the bank so that I really don't have to worry about the monthly and can can expand my portfolio. Um, So I think it's those different levels. And, you know, one thing, and and you guys brought it up briefly, and maybe this is how we wrap it up, but... Jeremy's 10 years older than me, by the way. Yeah, see, I've I've got... (laughs) He's got the... I've got to step on you. Old wisdom, I got the young. I've got to step on you. I I think that people, um, and I get it, and you guys kind of put an error side of caution there with your primary residence, right? For most people, their primary residence is the biggest investment that they're going to make in their lives. 
Um, I think that obviously you have to be careful when you collateralize and leverage that primary residence, but in the same breath, you know, take a look at the equity you've got in those properties. And this is where I think it comes back to the cash buyer discussion is, you know, whether it's a home equity line or if that property is able to be brought into the same portfolio with a lender like rural first, you know, there's a lot of equity there you can leverage that doesn't necessarily put you at risk. So if you've got hundred thousand dollars in equity in your primary residence and you only need fifty thousand dollars for a down payment you know you still have a big equity cushion there and you're only leveraging a little bit of that equity on your primary resident is it risky yeah i mean it's primary residence there's an there's a lien against it but ultimately like that's that's your money that's that's your effort that you've put in um and i think a lot of people fail to look at their primary residence as probably the best piece of collateral that they have to get this process moving. And if, if you want the land and you know you can afford the payments, don't feel like you need another 20% or 15% cash in your pocket. Look at your primary inequity and then save that money so that you're guaranteed to make payments on both your primary residence and this new property. Well, and feel free to tell me if I'm wrong here, but like, doesn't seem like you can lose in that situation because worst comes to worst, sell the asset. You're not going to lose money. On right. an asset that you're buying, a uh, land at least a in land. land because of the secure investment yeah. of it. Right. Sorry, I'm out. Well, yeah, and you're going to have that equity stake going into it anyways because we're only going to lend you up to eighty five percent. Right. So we're you're going to have an um an equity. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you leverage 50% of your equity from your primary and now that 50% is sitting on the secondary, that's equity in the secondary. That's now. appraising. Has so now timber, is leased. You, you didn't yeah. give up any equity. You just split it amongst two assets. Dude, I think so many people think about one day I'll buy land, you know, and they think it's like, well, I'm going to just take it. And then that money is gone. Like, yeah. And it's like, you know, I've worked my whole life to make money to buy an asset yeah and like i just don't it's not that way at all it's like you know i've we're doing this and we're generating income to, to invest in assets that are now also growing and so your portfolio is expanding you're not like losing i mean technically you don't have that cash in the bank but you're not well it goes you're back, gaining wealth you're it, not losing it goes it. back to the value on net worth right yeah, and that right. most people with a high net worth don't have that in cash they have it in assets right. you know and those assets include primary residence properties, you know, other residents, whatever, um, you know, and so when you look at that aspect of it, you've got to always have enough cash to pay the monthlies, right? That's, that's, you have to have it, but you can leverage all the other assets that make up your net worth for that initial lump sum of down payment. And I think the moment you do that, you realize, you know, if I don't have to put 50 grand in cash and I can set that in the bank, that's a lot of mortgage payments for several years you know, sitting in that bank account versus I just dropped it on my down payment. Now I got to figure out how to pay this thing for the next three to four years before I sell it. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, it's a money game. Um, but I think that people need to look at how that leveraged. And so I guess first things is they go to what ruralfirst.com is the best way to find out how to contact whoever the, the loan officer in their area that they're looking. Now, is it loan officer in the area that you're li you live or are looking to buy? What, what would be the best advice there? It depends on where you're located, right? Okay. So if you're somebody that's located in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, but you're buying property in Kentucky, for example, right? Um, then you're going to be looking for a rural first loan officer in Kentucky because we don't necessarily service Pennsylvania. Right gotcha. Now. Yep. That makes sense. Um, but let's say it's somebody who lives in Kentucky buying property in Ohio. Like we see that quite a bit. 
and at that point it's whatever you're comfortable with right like if you prefer to be close to an office like you want to be able to go into your local office and sit down with Amanda then work out of the office that's closest to you so maybe it's in Kentucky mm-hmm. or you know if, if you could care less um then you know it's kind of up to you at that point yeah I mean I always say that I think that we're specialists in our area like I cannot go to Kentucky and be um as much of a resource as I would be in southeastern Ohio and this same goes to like even you know other parts of Ohio um, because I'm working with such a different demographic and such a different um, property values <laughs> than yeah. a lot of places in the state. Um, I think that it is useful sometimes when you look at um, somebody that is in the area you want to go. And we try to be pretty um, transparent with our teammates too. Like, hey, listen, I'm probably not the best resource for this person. Would you mind talking to them? Or would you mind giving them a call? Um, that's kind of the beauty of not being a commission-based uh, lender. Right. Yep. That makes sense. Well, cool. Well, Emily and Amanda, we appreciate you guys being on the Abata Farm podcast. It's like an hour and a half of just... Yeah, you guys have done a great job of fielding our haphazard question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it it does help, though. I think a lot of people are going to tune into this podcast and be like, okay, it's possible, you know, or or maybe it's going to happen. It can happen quicker than I thought it could. Um, I, I mean, I for me, I think the main takeaway is t- if talk to a lender, you know, yep. I mean, don't, you don't have to know all the stuff. If you think that you want to buy something that's going to require financing, call lender, you yep. know, and, and ask, say, Hey, here's my, know roughly what your financial situation is. Hey, I think I can afford this yep. and then figure out how to, to go from there. Sounds like that's my yep. main takeaway. Yep. And you guys are probably going to want them to do what, like a personal financial uh, statement, uh, like an out of the gate to say, okay, here's where I stand right now. Yeah. And the beauty of what we do too is so um, right now we do a soft credit pool when you do give us your information. So we're able to take a look at your finances without, you know, hurting your score, or maybe if it isn't the right time, great. It doesn't matter because it's never affected your score. Um, so that's kind of the nice thing of what we do. And plus we're able just to sit down and look at those numbers and maybe not even make application, just have a good conversation around the game plan and your finances. Um, I would say a lot of times that that's probably where I start is the conversation ahead of time before I even touch the computer or put anything in the system. Awesome. Very cool. Well, if anybody's listening to this and is interested in at least purchasing in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, get a roll first, check it out. And maybe you end up talking to Amanda or Emily on the phone. Yep. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate you being on the Abata Farm podcast. Thank you so much for your time and and knowledge in this. It it helps us a lot to be able to kind of talk through a lot of these situations with somebody that, that does this every day. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us. It's been fun. Thanks again. We'll do it again soon. Starting to roll, man. I mean, um, critical in that lending is the foundational piece. You have to have money to buy a farm. That's just how it is. It (laughs) tends to be how the world works. So, you know, they're not taking chickens and cows anymore in exchange for land, unfortunately. But uh, no, just good information there. I mean, and again, you know, I think what Emily and Amanda really hit on is the fact that even if you think you know how you're going to do it, just pick up the phone and call them. And see what the options are. I mean, it's, yeah, it's literally their job to help us piece together the financing of a property. I mean, the fact is they caught me off guard by saying, no, you know, it could be 15%. Well, that 5% back into my bank account to pay mortgages is is huge. That could be 20, 30 grand. Yes. On the right piece of property. Yep. So, I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, it you don't know until you talk to them, you know, and, and I think it'll also help form your bounds and your boundaries to what you can afford. 
Um, even though you think you might be able to afford this, you might be needing to buy less or you may be able to afford more. Um, you know, I think all of that's super critical. And then, you know, when you get to a more advanced level of asset holding, the ability to leverage those assets under that in-house portfolio is gonna, it'll be a game changer. Um, to be able to not have to bring that money out of pocket, you'll be able to stack more assets in your portfolio much faster using equity than having to wait a whole year to save up 20% and then drop it and wait a whole year. Now you've got this equity, you're just continuing to leverage. Um, do you think, and, uh, <clears throat> maybe it was a miss that I didn't ask the question, but just because, you know, an asset's not held or financed by, let's say rural first, for example, doesn't mean that they can't collateralize it. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't, but it's more difficult, um, because they don't want to be the second, um, that's right person under that loan in terms of a lien. They, they're okay taking a second that's position under themselves, yeah. but they don't want to do a second under another bank. So that's why. Yep. And so, yeah. And, and again, maybe it's not rural first, maybe if you're in Pennsylvania, it's ag choice credit, but ultimately you've got to figure out the different options that you have and you're probably best to at least get your secondary assets under it if not your secondary and your primary home to leverage those assets together so yeah anyways great way to to kick it off if you're looking at buying a farm or buying land buying hunting ground you know check out ruralfirst.com um check out our whitetail property sites if you're in western pennsylvania by the time you listen to this hopefully jared and i have some listings popping up under our our uh, platform and uh, send us questions, man. If you're looking for property or you've got property to sell or you're looking to hear uh, for information on a lender, you know, write us on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever works for you. Um, and I think we're going to try to keep the financing conversation kind of rolling. I, yep. I don't know if we have it locked in yet, but we're going to try to talk to... Bring Ag, in another lender. Ag yep. Choice Ag Farm Choice. Credit um, mm -hmm. next week. Everybody does it a little different. I know Ag Choice has a little bit more flexibility in the timber than Rural First does. So yep. we might get into that conversation a little more, but um, Yeah. yeah. Anyways, we appreciate you listening to this episode of I Bought a Farm, episode five with Amanda Falk and Emily Stamper from Rural First, and we will catch you on the next one. Later. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the I Bought a Farm podcast, make sure you check it out every other Thursday night on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and any other place that you might find your favorite podcast.